Okay, you could turn to Romans chapter 11, and I'll open in prayer. Father, once again, we come before you, Lord, and ask for your special ministry to help us to understand the Word of God better. We thank you for the Spirit of God who gives us that understanding. We know the Lord that it also requires that we would rightly divide the Word of Truth, and I pray, God, that you would help me to do that this morning. It also, Lord, takes the preparation of our hearts, and I would hope that everyone here, Lord, is prepared to receive your word. Think of the scripture that says it's the engrafted word that's able to save souls. And Lord, we would pray that through the preaching of the word today, that many, many would turn from their sin and trust Christ and surrender their life to him. Father, I pray for the persecuted church, those who cannot gather in a meeting like this today. Lord, that you would minister through your spirit to them through the knowledge of the word of God that they have hidden in their hearts. Encourage and strengthen them. I pray for those who cannot be here by reason of a health situation or other situation in their life, that God, you would just Bless them where they are and, and help them, Lord, to keep looking unto you as the author and the finisher of their faith, just as we must do in Jesus' name. Amen. So usually at, at the end of a message, you say, okay, well, here's the takeaway. Here's what I want you to, to take from this. So what I'm going to do now is give you that up front. I want you, as we uh, consider this passage in the book of Romans today. My prayer is that it would promote three things in your life, in your heart. First, gratitude for the grace of God, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. In the casting away of Israel, the setting aside of Israel, the grace of God came to the Gentiles. And we're Gentiles here this morning. So gratitude for the grace of God. Secondly, humility, because we did nothing to deserve that grace. And then thirdly, I will hope that you will come away just trusting in the Lord, continuing that commitment of faith to Him. Because when things look bleak, God sometimes shows himself the strongest. And you know, you and I are not able to make much out of the broken pieces of life. But God can. Just look what he did with Israel. Look at their history. And look what God did. In their rejection of Christ, he opened up the world to the gospel. And he's not forsaken Israel, as some teach. All right, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. We're going to start with the scripture here, the first scripture. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. That means the futility and emptiness. 
Now, how many people do you know have no purpose in life, really? Uh, uh, the only purpose really would be to satisfy the selfish desires of their heart. Having the understanding, that's their mind, darkened, being alienated or separated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. And then he adds these words, because of the blindness of their heart. So he's speaking of Gentiles here. The word blindness, poros, we mentioned this in a prior uh, message on Romans. But Barclay wrote in his commentary, Porosis comes from poros, which originally meant a stone that was harder than marble. It came to have certain medical uses. It was used for the chalk stone, which can form in the joints and completely paralyze action. It was used of the callus that forms when a bone has broken and reset. A callus which is harder than the bone itself. Finally, the word came to mean the loss of all power of sensation. It describes something which had become so hardened, so petrified, that it had no power to feel at all. And he adds, the terror of sin is in its petrifying effect. The process of sin is quite discernible. No man becomes a great sinner all at once. At first he regards sin with horror, When he sins, there enters into his heart remorse and regret. But if he continues to sin, there comes a time when he loses all sensation and can do the most shameful things without any feeling at all. His conscience has been petrified, has been hardened. You know, that same kind of hardening in the unsaved Gentiles made the Jews insensitive to God's word concerning Christ. In verse 25 of Romans 11, if you just glance down, Paul says, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That hardening or blindness, same word, in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now, we mentioned last week that their national sin was rejecting the Messiah sent by God. Next Sunday on the Christian calendar, I think, is Palm Sunday, and it commemorates the the entrance of uh, Jesus into Jerusalem, or is it two Sundays off? I'm not sure. But the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem when he was rejected by the Jewish authorities. And you remember the scene, the Pharisees, when when, when the praise was being offered to Jesus, the Pharisees wanted the disciples of Jesus to, to stop it. He said, rebuke your disciples, because they were saying, blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What did Jesus do immediately after that rejection of Christ? It's interesting, because remember, he says, if they were to keep silent, the very stones would cry out. But then he goes on, and he prophecies the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem, because they did not recognize the day of their visitation. Now, I want you to see the parallel in your Bible between Romans 11, verse 12, and Romans verse 11, 15. Remember, I said that verse 13 and 14 are a parenthesis. But if you look at Romans eleven twelve, 12, now watch. It says, now if the fall of them, and that was Israel, be the riches of the world, that's Gentile salvation, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, 
their salvation or blessings to come. So I underlined the fall of them. And that's, that is equivalent to verse 15, for if the casting away of them. So those two are, are equivalent. And then he also speaks of the riches of the world in verse 12, which is Gentile salvation. In verse 15, he, he speaks of the reconciling of the world. Again, equivalent terms. And then in verse 12, how much more their fullness, that would be their blessing to come upon them when they receive Christ. But notice how he puts it in verse 15. What will the receiving of them be? Life from the dead. A restoration to life. And we talked about that last week in Ezekiel chapter 37. Jesus is going to come again. Amen? And when he comes, what the Bible calls the second advent, not the rapture of the church, Israel will repent. And they will turn to him and receive him as their Lord and Savior. And then we will have the end time resurrection when, when those bones will truly live. They've come back into the land according to the prophecy of Ezekiel 37, but there was no, there's no breath in them. They, they've come back in unbelief, coming from all over the world. But there will be a time when that will change. Isaiah 66, 8. Who hath heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or will a nation be born at once? So what you have here next is a picture of the Israeli flag. My guess is that this is the flag. I'm not, not, not quite sure where that is. I thought first, you know, there's one like that on Masada, but that's not Masada. Um, but that's the Israeli flag. And you'll see that in Israel, but where, one place you will never see that is the Temple Mount. The flag of Israel is not flying on the Temple Mount because it's controlled really by an Islamic religious authority. If you visit the Temple Mount today and you raise an Israeli flag, you will be arrested. And that just happened to a girl from Canada not long ago, and her case has not been settled. But one day, one day, the Temple Mount will be under Jewish control. And that's when Jesus comes. In the meantime, the Jews are returning to their homeland. As I said, they're returning in unbelief. But there will be a future, future return. Isaiah eleven eleven. It will come to pass in that day that the Lord will set his hand again. Notice, the second time. To recover the remnant of his people which will be left from Assyria, Egypt, Parthus and Cush, from Elam, Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Notice this, he will set up an ensign for the nations, a banner for the nations. I think that's the flag of the Messiah. And will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You've probably heard of the, the term Zionism, which talks about the return to the land. And the Zionist movement began in, I think, in 1897 with Theodore Herzl. And he had just, just, he said, there's a land without a people and a people without a land. 
And God had put this burden on his heart to have the Jewish people come back to their homeland. Now, he never saw it. He died in 1905 from a heart attack. But about 47 years or so later, Theodor Herzl, who was in Austria at the time, they flew his body to, back to Israel. And when they came into the land, four Israeli fighter, four Israeli fighter jets escorted that plane and then landed in Israel. And there was a just tremendous of outpouring of love and admiration for Theodor Herzl because his dream was being fulfilled. And they buried him on a hill outside Jerusalem. He came back to the land. You know, it's just like when think of Moses and, and when Joseph died, he says, take my bones out of here, right? Bring me back to the land, that kind of a thing. So look in verse uh, 16 now. By the way, someday I hope I could do a little video presentation. I've been working on this in my mind, on the history of Israel, past, present, and future. Not, not a long thing, but just, just to get you to see and understand that Israel is a miraculous nation. There is absolutely no reason on earth for its survival other than the power of God. Nothing. And, and that will be really, I think, encouraging. So verse 16, For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. We talked about this last week. The first piece of fruit or the dough in verse 16a is Abraham and the patriarchs. The root in 16b is Abraham and the patriarchs. The lump in 16a, the natural descendants of Abraham. The branches in 16b, the natural descendants of Abraham. Sometimes it's difficult to follow Paul, but when you really see what he is getting at, wow, you know, you just stand back and, and uh, even though he is difficult this time, it's like Peter said, it takes work to put it all together. So now in verse 17, we have what I call the tale of two trees. And if some of the branches be broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Well, who are the, the broken off branches? The broken off branches are the unbelieving Jews. Look in verse 20. Why were they broken off? Because of what? Because of unbelief. Because of their rejection of Christ. The Gentile believers are the wild olive tree. Now, they were grafted into the olive tree with the believing Israelites. They become part of, part of the, the, the believing Israelites are, are the remnant. But the saved Gentiles, he says here, partake of the root and the fatness. So I just, I just characterize that as the rich blessings of the olive tree. And the olive tree, I believe, people have different ideas on this, but I believe the olive tree is corporate Israel in relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12.3, I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse them that curse you, and in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. We are rich, right? Because our riches go all the way back to Abraham's faith. He was justified by faith. And we're the children of Abraham by faith. And we partake of the spiritual blessings of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, there are still blessings that are going to come to national Israel that are not ours. We are going to see those things, but there's particular things. We'll be talking more about that. 
So we, we have this richness, this, this fatness as the, as the word goes, this fullness spiritually because of Abraham's faith and because of the faith that we put in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the process, before that, or that happened, what happened? God had set aside Israel because of their rejection to the Jew first, but also what? To the Gentiles. And we looked at Acts chapter 13, where Paul says after the Jews, and that was a long sermon in Acts. Matter of fact, somebody said, and I agree with it, when you read it carefully, some people say, well, it's, it's the Acts of the Apostles. Other people say, no, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. You know what it really is? It's the sermons of the apostles. Just read it. It's, it's, most of it is sermons. So if you want good preaching, just go to the book of Acts and read it. It's exciting. But in Acts 13, after they rejected the Jewish delegation, they rejected Paul's preaching. He says, behold, I go to the Gentiles. And then when he's in Rome and he's in prison and the Jews come to him and they reject it too, some did. Some accepted it, but some did not. He said, behold, I go to the Gentiles. So that was the focus of, of Paul's ministry. So the gospel did go to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles received it in a tremendous way, just as Paul says, they will hear it. And you know what? That's what's exciting. If you share your faith with people, you might have to share your faith with 20 people before one accepts it. But it's exciting when that happens, right? So you can expect rejection. There will always be those who say no, but there are some, there are some who will say yes. And that, that keeps you going. So how should we feel about this as Gentiles? Well, we have no ground for boasting. Look at verse 18. Boast not against the branches, against those descendants of Abraham. But if you boast, remember this he's saying, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. In other words, the root is not sustained or supported by a wild shoot of an olive tree, but, by, but vice versa. We've been grafted into that tree. We're latecomers, so to speak. So the Gentiles who were saved, and there were a lot of them who were being saved at that time, they needed to have the right perspective. Listen, isn't life about the right perspective? It really is. We, we just, I think our thinking gets out of whack when we just focus on our own circumstances and the difficulties we have and we don't get a bigger perspective of what's going on in, the, in this world and all around us. So to boast means to arrogantly claim superiority over or exult over. So Paul's saying, you Gentiles have, have no ground to feel superior to the descendants of Abraham. The Gentiles found the way to salvation because Israel had cut themselves off from God's blessing. They rejected it, the scripture says. They rejected Christ, the deliverer. So I just ask you this morning, how about you? Do you think that you deserved to be saved more than someone else? That's, that's hardly the case, biblically speaking. We know that because... We are all as an unclean thing. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of our righteousness, Isaiah says in chapter 64 and verse 6, 
All of our righteousness is as a filthy rag. And I want to tell you this morning that one filthy rag isn't any better than any other filthy rag. It's still a filthy rag. We stand in judgment of others when we stand in judgment of others. And it's not always wrong to judge sinful action. But when we, when we just pass judgment on others inappropriately, we should pause to, re- pause to remember the pit from which we have been drawn. And that's called retrospect. Retrospect. Retrospect means to look back, right? To look back. It's a meditation on a past event. A considering of a past event. Isaiah 51, 1, Hearken to me, you who follow after righteousness. You that seek the Lord, look to the rock whence you are hewn and to the hole of the pit where you have been dug out of. That's all of us, right? We were in the pit of sin. Cooper says, look back into yourselves, consider what you once were, in what a depth of misery you were originally sunk, reflect on the natural hardness of your heart, on its insensibility to spiritual things, and on its dreadful alienation from God. As Paul reminded the audience there that he was writing to in Romans in in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you are inexcusable, O man, Whatsoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, you're only condemning yourself. For thou that judgest does the same things. So we have to be really careful with that because we're all sinners, right? We're all sinners. Now the branches include the natural descendants, Jewish believers, and the unsaved Jews. Those are the branches. He says, boast not against the branches, the natural descendants of Abraham. But if you boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. The root again is the Abrahamic covenant. And I want you to stop just as we said, because of the Israel's unbelief, we've partaken of the richness and the fatness of the olive tree. Christians owe a debt to the Jewish people. To Father Abraham, who was justified by faith, We owe a debt because through them, Paul says, came the oracles of God, the very Bible that you're holding in your hand. Through them came prophetic revelation. You want to get excited? Study Bible prophecy, right? Study the prophecies that have already been fulfilled in amazing detail. Every one of them. Every prophecy concerning, in the Old Testament, concerning the first the coming of Jesus Christ was fulfilled literally. Everyone concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ will be fulfilled literally also. But most of all, through Israel came what? The Messiah. Right? Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Sadly, rather than recognizing that debt, Many in the Gentile world have been hostile toward the Jewish people. The world has been hostile to the Jewish people because they were the chosen people of God to bring a light to the Gentiles, to eventually bless the world with the gospel message, with salvation through Jesus Christ. 
Israel's history has been a history of warfare, opposition, hatred, and it continues today. I read recently that the University of California higher education system, oh, that's enough to scare anybody. California, higher education. There's nothing higher about it. It's about as low as you can get. And as, and, but they're considering ad, adding a new admission requirement into any California school that's part of the higher education system. A new re- admission requirement that will compel them, high school students in the state, to learn a controversial, what they call, ethnic studies curriculum. Doesn't that sound really good? Ethnic studies curriculum? And they're going to have to take that course before they're admitted into the university. And the proposed ethnic studies course criteria, according to the sources that I've read, promote anti-Jewish and anti-Zionist ideologies, They portray the Jews as white privileged oppressors and Zionism, the movement that Theodore Herzl started to bring the people back to the land, as a racist colonialist system of oppression. I mean, look at, pray for the kids growing up and wherever they're growing up that are facing public education. Now, notice though, Verse 19, the Gentiles were grafted in contrary to nature. Thou wilt say then, verse 19, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. I mean, that would give grounds you know, for boasting if they didn't understand it correctly. But look what it says in Romans eleven twenty four: For if thou were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted in contrary to nature into a good olive tree, So God was doing an amazing thing there. And he continues to do amazing things with every Gentile who's saved, with every Jew who's saved. And the future is bright in terms of the salvation of both Gentiles and the Jews. So in other words, God working contrary to nature indicates to me that the Gentiles in the church had a miraculous origin and relationship to God. They came in the same way as the Jews, by faith, but God had done, a, done an incredible thing in order to bring that about. So what's the proper response? What is the proper response to God's gracious salvation by faith? Well, Paul spells it out in verse 20. Well, well, verse 20, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith, right? That's how we stand. We stand by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand by faith in the word of God that he has given to us. So he says, we stand by faith, be not high-minded, proud or haughty, but fear. Well, what does that mean? It means to stand in awe of God. I mean, just stop some time and think of your own salvation. And that should just cause us to fall to our knees in awe of God. That's a reverential heart attitude toward God. That is what fear is. A reverential heart attitude toward God. We bow before him in our heart. People without the Lord, they have no fear of God. And that's why they do what they do. 
So we stand, stand secure, not by merit, the pride of our accomplishments, but by faith, trusting in the promises of God. All the promises of God. And the Bible says that all the promises of God are in Christ Jesus, yea and what? Amen. They're true. They're certain. So see, I look at Romans chapter 11, not just to get through it, but I just look at this and I go, wow, what an amazing thing that God has done. He, he can make a beautiful thing out of broken pottery, broken pieces. I often say, you know, quote the scripture, he makes beauty out of ashes. And even out of Israel's unbelief, he's done this, this beautiful thing. The Gentile world was opened up to the gospel. So Nandi gives a, ver- a warning in verse 21 and 22. For if God spared not the natural branches, those that had rejected Christ and were cast off, Take heed, lest he also spare not thee. If he judged them because of their, their unbelief, their sin, then, then don't boast. Don't boast. Guard your heart that no, no spirit of unbelief would come in unto you. And he mentions in verse 22 this. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness... If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. Bible says this, pride, what? Pride goes before a fall. How often have you seen that in someone's life? So he says, behold, strong word. It means to look upon intensely, to consider seriously. Well, Paul, what are we to look upon intensely and to consider seriously here this morning? We're told to look upon and behold two things, the goodness and the severity of God. It was God's goodness, his grace, that brought the Gentiles to a place of favor with him. That's what he said. What is goodness? What is God's goodness? It's his kindness. It's his kindness. God's goodness, Edward Lee said way back in the 1600s, is an essential property whereby he is infinitely and of himself good. All the, any goodness we have has been derived, right? From the image of God in us and from, from what we know and experience through the scriptures and so forth. But God's goodness is in and of himself. John Brown in the 1700s said his absolute goodness is an essential property in himself, is the fountain, but his relative goodness is that kindness which flows out from that fountain upon his creatures. So God is absolutely good. That's his nature, his essential goodness. But his relative goodness is what we see each and every day. The sun shines on the just and the unjust, right? The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The food that you're going to eat. All the things that we have, we owe to the goodness of God. Now listen. Titus says, chapter 3, verse 1, put them in mind all believers to be subject to principalities and powers to obey magistrates and to be ready to do every good work 
to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving different lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Think of the pit from which you were drawn, is what he was saying there again. But even in the midst of that, he says, the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward mankind appeared. I mean, the whole world was a mess, right? Ever since the day of Adam, it's been a mess. Fall of Adam. But then he adds in Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing that supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God. But he adds this, talking about his goodness, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. God, we say, God is good all the time. All the time, Joe said, they say over there in Kenya, all the time God is good. God is not just good. He is abundant in his goodness. He is abundant in his goodness. Psalm 107, verse 1, will give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And just read the rest of that psalm. That's what it highlights. Hosea 3, 4, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince. And that's what they're presently doing. And without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without tariff, and with, without guidance from the Lord, like they had before in the days of the prophets. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and the greater son of David. Who is that? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus, Jesus. And notice what it says, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. They're going to bow down and acknowledge him. And they're going to honor him because of his goodness to them and what he has done. Listen, the goodness of God in giving men a chance to repent is often despised by sinners who will not part with their sin. They have evidence of the goodness of God every day. They have evidence of the reality of God, the truth of God every day. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show forth His handiness. And that's why Paul said in Romans chapter 2 that men, all men everywhere are inexcusable because they see the evidence of God, the witness of God in creation, and they reject that. And rather than bow before him and acknowledge him as the creator God, as the one who sent the Savior into the world, they begin to to worship other things. And they begin to do all kind of despicable things. All manner of evil. So Romans 2 You think this old man that judges them that do things that you do the same, you'll escape the judgment of God? No, never. You won't. Do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance? If a person repents and comes to Jesus Christ, it's not because they're bright and figured it all out. It's because the goodness of God in granting them repentance, in granting them time, to repent. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should what? Perish, but that all should come to repentance. He says here, when we, we, we read before, all day long he stretched his hand out to a disobedient Israel. 
people who are rejecting him. How many times, how many people do you know, you know, that God has extended mercy and grace to? He stretched out his hand toward, and they just reject him. They reject him. So I'll just close with this. It was unbelief, disobedience that, that brought upon Israel the severity of God. Because Paul said, remember two things. Behold, two things. The goodness of God. And if you reject the goodness of God, then I want you to think about the severity of God. God, what is the severity of God? God's severe wrath is his settled opposition to all that is evil which flows from his holiness. It's a reaction of his holiness to the evil in the world because God is a perfectly moral being. He cannot bear to look upon iniquity. That's what the Bible says. God cannot bear to look upon iniquity. He hates the garments stained by sin. The scripture says that the very plowing of the wicked. Now how, what, plowing is just such a, you know, it's not morally good and evil. Not wrong to plow a field, right? To work. But God says the plowing of the wicked is sin. Why? Because their hearts aren't right with God. Their hearts aren't right with God. And whatever they do, they don't do with thoughts toward God or gratitude toward God. They do selfishly. So the very plowing of the wicked is sin. And God hates sin not only because he is holy, but because of the destruction and the suffering that sin brings. Sin enslaves people. Sin ruins lives. Sin is part of your DNA. You cannot escape it. I cannot escape it. We live in a sinful world. We have sin even in our own lives. But friends, that is the beauty of the cross. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, the Bible says God demonstrated his love toward us. While we were still sinners, we can't think of ourselves any better than anybody else. Christ died for us. And he's always willing to forgive us. If we confess our sins, the Bible says he's faithful and just to what? To, to, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to keep forgiving us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The wrath of God is nothing to take lightly. The coming tribulation period described in the book of Revelation describes the wrath of the Lamb being poured out upon the whole earth and there will be literally no place to hide. Our hiding place is Jesus, right? Now think about it. I don't believe believers are going into the tribulation. I believe in a pre-wrath or pre-tribulation rapture. But what was your hiding place from the judgment of God? Jesus, right? You receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the judgment of God did not fall and will not fall upon you. But it says in Revelation 6.15, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, the bondmen, the free men, they hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Listen, there is no fear of God be, be, in, in many people's eyes. They, they have no fear of God before their eyes today. One day, that's going to all change. And they're going to say to the mountains, and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who will be able to stand? Who could stand the wrath of God. No one. No one. Revelation 14.9 If any man worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, 
the same person, that one will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That is the severity of God. That is the severity of God's judgment. It's final. It's forever. We, have a, we should have a burden for people who don't know Christ because that's what they face. That's what they face. If any man rejects God's goodness and the provision of his salvation through the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for his sins, that person will suffer the severity of God's judgment for their sins. Like I said, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Those passages I read have to do with the tribulation period. Have to do with the time of Jacob's trouble. When God is going to be pouring out judgment upon an unbelieving Israel. But want, the Bible says in the end, a great multitude of them are going to come to Christ. A nation will be born in a day. But according to prophecy in Zechariah, I think it's chapter 14, maybe around verse 10, two-thirds of the people will perish. That's, that's a severe judgment. So, I believe pre-tribulation rapture, that means I believe in imminence. Imminence. That means that Christ can, but does not necessarily have to come at any particular moment, as we think of it. It means that there are no signs which have to be fulfilled in order for the rapture to occur. People get confused. They look in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 has nothing to do with the church age. Church age is is over at that point. God is dealing with Israel again. And then at the end of that, what do you have? You have the millennium. You have the return of Christ. The second advent of Christ. And that's that's when this world is going to be amazingly transformed. But you know what? Even in the end of that, the Bible says there's going to be a rebellion. There's going to be people who are going to rise up. They're going to, they're, they're going to rise up and, and Satan is going to lead a final revolt before he's defeated. And we'll explain more about that before we get to the end of this chapter. Just touch on some of those things. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word, for the entrance of your word in our hearts. That we've been born again by the power of the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That we have been grafted in as Gentiles into the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Those promises that you made to Abraham. And Lord, just I pray God that we we would have an understanding of the times in which we live. An understanding of how you have worked in the history of Israel and preserved this, this tiny little nation. This tiny little plot of ground. Surrounded by Arab nations, hostile nations. And Lord, you've preserved them for a particular purpose. We're thankful, Lord, that, that through the prophetic revelation, many now believe and have believed for the centuries in the integrity of your word. And we're thankful, Lord, for every single person who has received Christ as their Savior, even those here in this room, for the goodness of God in allowing us that time to repent and receive your mercy. So Lord, I just pray now as we go into the Lord's Supper that we will be just mindful of these things, thinking of the severity of God, the judgment that fell upon Christ so it would not have to fall upon us. We pray in his name, amen.